All right, the questions that have been asked and submitted, I believe we had like 15 of them. Uh, a couple of them were very similar, so I combined them. Uh, I don't think we're gonna make it through all 13 questions tonight. That will take an awful lot. We'll try to get maybe nine or 10 of them done, and then I will save uh, the other ones for either second semester, or I know the people who submitted the questions and I'll visit with them uh, and answer their questions, but, but we'll get to as many as we can. All right, here's the first question for tonight. Uh, do you think that the Bible is infallible? And I think you all know what the word infallible means, without error, not able to fail is the idea behind it. And without apology, the Bible claims, makes that claim for itself. It's not a mistake that we call it God's word. And so there might be some Bible passages, Bible verses that you remember learning about the verbal inspiration of Scripture. And what that idea of verbal inspiration is that the very words that are recorded in the Bible were written at the direction of God, specifically God the Holy Spirit. So in John 17, as Jesus is making, he's praying for his disciples, he's praying for all people, he says this, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. The Apostle Paul writes to a young pastor named Timothy, and in his second letter to Timothy, he writes this in chapter 3, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, and correct, training and correcting, correcting and training in righteousness so the man of the person of God be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That idea of being God breathed, that, that literally God gave the writers the words that he wanted them to write. And maybe the clearest one comes from 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 20 and 21, where Peter writes this, uh, prophecy never had its origin in the will of human beings, but he, prophets, though human, spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That idea that, that the words that, that God wanted on the page of Scripture were literally breathed into the writers of the Bible. It didn't mean that they didn't have their own writing style. It doesn't mean that they didn't uh, do research. Luke talks about the research, the careful investigation he did before he wrote his gospel. But you and I can trust 2,000 years after the Bible was completed that those are the words that God wants us to know and believe for salvation. Let me give you a little illustration that I used to use with my high school classes when I, when I taught the Word of God in high school. I used to use this illustration. I, I said, just picture this. The Bible was written by about 40 different writers over a period of almost 1,600 years from the very first books of the Bible written by Moses around 1500 BC all the way through the Gospel of John, uh, his epistles, and the book of Revelation probably written somewhere around 90 AD. So that's about 1,600 years, 40 different writers, and yet the message of the Bible never changes one time. It's the same message from the beginning to the end. Just to show you how amazing that is, I don't know how many people are in here tonight, maybe 70, 75. What if I would give you all an assignment to go home today and bring something back to me next Wednesday and I would tell you the plot and you were all going to write me a short story and here's the plot. Boy and girl meet, boy and girl fall in love, boy and girl uh, split up, and then boy and girl get together at the end of the story. I've just described every romantic comedy that's ever been released, right? So you're all going to go home and you're going to write me a story and you're going to bring them back next week and we're going to read them. And this is 70 people who go to school in the exact same town, who grew up in very similar ways in many cases. How many of the stories, if you don't 
plagiarize are going to be exactly, the, or use ChatGPT or something like that. How many of those stories are going to be exactly the same? Probably none, right? You're going to have different ways that, probably different names for the characters, different ways that they met, different things that happened to them that, that they were pushed apart, and then different ways maybe that they even come back together. And, and th I think that's just an illustration that shows how amazing the Bible is, that the theme of the Bible, that one man came to take our place, the God-man Jesus, never changes from the beginning of the scriptures all the way through the end, uh, is a testimony to the fact that all scripture is God-breathed. All right, hopefully that helps. Does anybody have any comments or thoughts that they'd like to share about that? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I thought that was pretty clear, but thank you. Taylor. And, and uh, the contradictions, if, they, if people who say there are contradictions in the Bible, it's because we lack the understanding to see them. I'm not, I'm not sure what you're talking about or where the contradictions are, but those are often man-made and because we don't understand all of the things that the writer said. So, I, where, what do you, can you give me a specific example? Um, I mean, like, love thy neighbor. Yep. Um, and then there's one passage where they say, uh, show me your neighbor if you plant two different crops next to each other. <laughs> right. Okay, so th there were specific laws that governed the people of Israel as a nation so that they were set apart from all of That is not a. It, it doesn't fly in the face of loving your neighbor. It is how do people get along when they live together in the same area, right? So there were punishments for crimes that were committed. I'm not sure the specific one about planting two crops next to each other. Um, but but there, I think, again, looking at the context of things, you can pull a lot of passages out of context and make them seem like they contradict each other. But in context, they do not, if that makes sense. We can talk a lot more about it if you have more specific questions, Taylor, that would be great. All right, number two, why does Jesus heal people and then ask them not to tell others about it? I was trying to count up how many times he did that after he did miracles, and I think it's about eight or nine times. It might be a few more if I, did, if I missed some. But there are times that Jesus heals, drives out a demon, and then says to the person, don't tell anybody. And you might think, well, why would Jesus not want them to tell? Doesn't he want people to know that he's uh, performed these miracles? And I think Mark chapter 1 uh, was the one that kind of jumped out at me the most. There's a lot of miracles listed in Mark chapter 1. Uh, but specifically, after he drives a demon out of a man toward the end of that chapter, he asks him not to tell anybody. And then the man does. He goes and tells people. And I think we can understand that. I think we can understand why people spoke about it. Because if you're excited about something, you're going to tell people, right? If you, if you uh, were able to set a record for the Guinness Book of World Records, you probably wouldn't keep that to yourself. When you get an internship or you qualify for graduate school, generally you tell people about exciting things, right? So Jesus' reason for, for not wanting people to tell wasn't because he didn't want them to be excited about what happened, but because the aftermath of what happened in Mark chapter 1 is pretty indicative of why Jesus said that. 
So many people were coming to Jesus to be healed. So many people were focusing on the miracle that Jesus actually couldn't go into some towns because of the, the popularity that he had gained as this miracle worker. And what Jesus was concerned about wasn't that he didn't want to heal people, but he didn't want to, people to lose sight of the, the full reason while he, why he was here. And it, the healing was only supposed to be something that demonstrated the deeper purpose that Jesus was here for, and that was to seek and to save the lost. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I'd just like to read with you, uh, read for you what happened here in, in uh, Mark chapter uh, 1. This is 43 to 45. So Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, uh, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, yet the people still came to him from everywhere. So it isn't that he didn't want people to tell, but he wanted to be effective in what he was doing, especially pointing to himself as the savior from sin. All right? Thoughts, questions, comments? Let's move on to question number three. This one I got from a couple different people, and it might take a little bit just to get into this one. So uh, a couple different thoughts. Do you believe in the rapture, and will Christians go through the tribulation, or will we be raptured before, I think, before the, rap, before the tribulation? And then a, the similar question, is the tribulation the same as the rapture, and will God take believers home before that all happens? All right, that's pretty... What we're talking about here are the end times, right? What's going to happen as the end approaches? And if you want a great place in the Bible to go to read about the end times, there probably aren't two more complete chapters than Matthew chapter 24 and Matthew chapter 25. Jesus is speaking almost exclusively about the end times in those two chapters. And there are a couple things to kind of point out when we think about the end times or, or eschatology is the fancy word for the end times. And, and number one is, is why do all of the things that are going to happen happen? And Jesus explains that. So when he talks about wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and the signs of the end, he says all of these things are supposed to direct our attention upward. Lift our heads, lift our eyes because there are signals that Jesus is coming back, a reminder that he's coming back. The second reason Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 24 for the signs of the end are to uh, keep us ready. Nobody knows about the day or the hour, and so be ready, uh, Jesus says, be prepared for his coming at any time. So now let's talk about the rapture a little bit, because when most people use the word rapture, they are talking about a secret return of Jesus where people are caught up into heaven and then others are left behind. So there's this thought that Jesus is going to come back, secretly take people to heaven, and then everybody who's left on earth is going to have to figure out where they all went. So I've seen bumper stickers that say, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. I mean, that's how people think. And, and to be fair, the word rapture is in scripture. It comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It simply means to be caught up. And I'm going to read that passage to you in just a little bit. But the idea that there's a secret return of Jesus will, it is not taught in Scripture. And so if that's what you mean by the rapture, that somehow before the tribulation then other people are going to be left on earth, that believers are going to be gone, the answer is no. 
Uh, Jesus actually talks about this in Matthew 24, too, when he says that if that tribulation, if that time, that, that difficult time that we're going to go through, if that wasn't cut short uh, for the sake of the elect, then even the elect, those that God has chosen, might fall away. So believers are going to go through what is called sometimes in Scripture the tribulation. Well, where did this idea of the rapture come from? Well, it probably comes at least in part from Matthew 24, because as Jesus is talking, he says this, Two men will be working in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Only in context, if you read what Jesus is saying, he is not speaking about a rapture, but about the return of Jesus and how you're going to be side by side, working side by side with people who may not be believers and some will go to heaven and some will not. That's, the, that's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 24. Uh, he, he follows up those two passages by saying this, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour that the Son of Man will come. The best way to, to kind of bring this all together is, is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, if you want to grab a pew Bible, feel free. I'm using a NIV 2011. Uh, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 uh, has some great information that the Apostle Paul gives to the Thessalonians who had a question for him. It seems their question was something like this. Well, well what about people who died before, um, before we do? If they're dead when Jesus comes back, what's going to happen? Here's, here's what Paul says. I'm going to start in verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up, that's the word rapture in the original Greek, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What I'd love to do is just kind of repeat verse 16. Because this idea that there's going to be a secret return of Christ is certainly not taught in Scripture. The exact opposite is taught. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. Here's one thing that Scripture teaches. When Jesus comes again, everybody will know. Everybody will know. There will not be someone who is going to somehow miss out that Jesus returned. This voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, a loud command is going to precede Jesus coming. And at that point, if you want to read Matthew 25, is where you'll see what happens in Matthew 25 of the separation of believers and unbelievers and the final judgment that comes into play. We could talk a lot about this. Really what it gets into is an idea called millennialism. And millennialism is what is this thousand years that Revelation talks about? And the rapture kind of figures into that too. Uh, to, to just simplify it as much as possible, what the Bible teaches is that we are in the thousand years right now. That's not a specific amount of time as much as it is the New Testament era. And all of the things that are happening are fulfilling the prophecies 
that have to happen before Jesus comes back? I know that's a lot of information. So are there questions, things that I can follow up on, people want to ask or comment about? All right. Happy to talk about that more if you want to go a little, de little deeper. All right, let's go on to question number four. Do you, do you think other religions are worshiping our God differently or worshiping a different God? Um, to, I'll, I'll put it as plainly as I can. Uh, there is one God that the Bible teaches, and unless people are worshiping that God, they're worshiping a different God than, than Christians who believe the Bible are. However, I want to talk about that a little bit more fully and, and just start with the idea that God has given every person a natural knowledge of him. Much of our natural knowledge comes through what we can observe in this world, through creation. Uh, Solomon says it this way, every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Right? So when you look around at this world, somehow the world had to get here. And there's different, obviously, ways that people try to describe how the world got here. But part of our natural knowledge says somebody really wise, somebody really powerful put put the world here. That's what our natural knowledge tells us. The second thing that tells us that there's something that out there that we have to acknowledge is our conscience. Because no matter what society you've ever lived in, people understand that there are things that are considered crimes, sins, so to speak, right? Whether it's murder or stealing or taking someone's wife as your own or whatever it is, that those have been pretty natural things. And, and the conscience tells us when things are right or wrong. That's why there's a standard of morality that still exists in the world, even though people try to ignore it. However, here's the weakness of the natural knowledge of God. And this is what makes the Bible so amazing and so important. You can't know who the true God is. It can only tell you that there is a God. You need the Bible to reveal who the true God is. And the Bible reveals very clearly that there is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Deuteronomy chapter 6 says. Or, or Paul says it this way in, in uh, his first letter to Timothy uh, when he writes this, There is one God and one mediator between God and human beings, the man Christ Jesus. Or we can take Jesus' own words in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter said it this way in Acts chapter 4, salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And so the Bible, without apology, says there is one God through whom you can be saved and it is the one who sent his son Jesus to take your place. And if that is not at the core of who you worship, then you are worshiping a different God than the God that the Bible, uh, the, the Bible proclaims. And that's where we have to find our information because finally that's where God gives us his information uh, in his word. I don't know if I, I, I always like to say it this way, but the Bible is inclusively exclusive. All right, so this is what I mean by that. God, our Savior, wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so God provided salvation for all people. Not all people will benefit from that salvation because some reject what God freely offers. But that's what God wants. That's his desire. And so that's the inclusivity of God's grace. Everyone, everyone's sins are paid for. 
But the exclusive, the exclusive part is it happens through faith in Jesus. Faith that only the Holy Spirit can work. And consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. All right. That's probably enough on that one unless people have thoughts about that. Okay, let's move on to number five. Once people pay their bills and expenses, do you think they should uh, use some of their money to help people and or give to the church? If so, how much? And do you think that the church in the past used the 10% of people's income to control their people? I, I'm gonna, I'll start with the second half. Uh, every day I walk into this chapel, I increase the population of sinners by one. And so do you. And so it's fair for me to say that not every decision that's ever made by, by Christian leaders, not every decision that's been made by pastors or church councils or whatever has been a God-pleasing decision. Having said that, I will tell you this. In the New Testament, there is no stipulation for how much a Christian should give. I'm going to take a little bit of, of just a, a little different angle on the first half of the question. Uh, the once people pay their bills and expenses, the Bible would, would, would actually strike that statement and say, start with giving to God and then everything else. Uh, here's how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He said, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So, so Paul encouraged a, this is a word that you might have heard before, a first fruits giving, that we give to God first, uh, and then whatever else comes after what we've decided to give, uh, that becomes what we use for our expenses, our bills, our entertainment, whatever else we use money for. If you want two chapters of the Bible, so now you got Matthew 24, 25, I'm going to direct you to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Those are two chapters where Paul talks an awful lot about Christian giving. And he starts in chapter 8 with this, our reason for giving. He writes this, he, said, he, he says this, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I had a pastor who, who shared this. I've heard this a lot of times, but I'll, I'll tell you what the pastor that, that uh, shared with me because it, it's an amazing statement that has never gone away from me. I've heard lots of people say you can't outgive God. God gave his son, Jesus. There's no way that you and I can ever give back to God anything that will come close to equaling that. But here's how the pastor added a statement that I won't ever forget. He said, you can't outgive God, but it's sure fun trying. And I just love that attitude. Because he followed what Paul said later in chapter 9 when he wrote this, Each person should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So let's start with this. Why do we give? Well, we first of all give because everything that we have already belongs to God anyway. The earth is the Lord and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So Nothing that I have in my wallet, in my bank account, nothing that I have actually really is mine. It's actually God's. And he gives it to me to use. And so what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is give. Give to the God who already gave to you first. And he doesn't stipulate what percentage of your income it has to be. And I think there's good reason for that. Yes, in the Old Testament, God required his people, the people of Israel, to tithe. That's give 10%. 
He does not have that requirement in the New Testament. But, but could I submit this to you? I don't think Paul was saying that so that we give less than 10%. He didn't lay out a percentage. I understand that. But don't you think Paul's saying, give what you've decided in your heart to give because God wants us to be cheerful givers. He's trying to say to us, you don't have to be constrained by the Old Testament rules of 10%. You can give whatever you want. And think of what God has already given to you and everything that you have. And, and so I will never put on people how much percentage of their income they have to give. That's entirely between you and God. And I don't have anything to say to you about how much that should be. But what the Bible has to say to you is this. Remember what God has done for you. And then that, let that be your guide when you think about what you give in return to God. And I think that's the safest place to leave it. Has the, has the church, has it possible that people have abused and still do today the idea that, every, that it's a requirement? I struggle with that. I would say yes to that question because when you require something to do some, someone to do something, then it's no longer cheerful. It's reluctant. And that's not what God wants. He wants us to give from a cheerful heart that recognizes first what Christ has done for us. All right, number six, how are we doing for time? A couple more we'll take yet. Oh, question. Art, go ahead. I like that scripture where it says, Give and it shall be given unto you 30, 60, 90, and a hundredfold. Right. Malachi says it this way. I love he says this. He says, Bring the whole tithe, because he's still talking to Old Testament people, into the storehouse and see if God won't throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing you won't have room for it. That's why I love what that pastor said when he said, you can't outgive God, but it's fun trying. Because God has a way of giving generously to people who recognize his generosity in their lives and return blessings, their blessings to him. That's exactly what the Bible says. So thanks for that, Art. Appreciate it. All right, number six, what should we as Christians do with our time on earth? I think we can answer this one pretty quickly. Uh, we should use the gifts that God's given us. Uh, live for Christ while looking ahead to an eternity with him. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light, uh, like, they're salt and light. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. I think about Ephesians chapter 2, we're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, Christ's love compels us, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, for, for we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I think the Bible simply says, live every day in the grace that God has given you with your eye on the fact that something better is still coming. All right, one more. Real, and I want to talk, because this is my favorite question. I should have put it a little higher. Do you believe that everything happens for a reason? If so, please explain sexual assault. And we could put all kinds of things in there, right? So I start with this. I don't like that statement, everything happens for a reason. Because it's not quite scriptural. I like to turn it around a little bit and say this. The bad things that happen in this world, we cannot put on God. James says it this way, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted by their own desires when they're led astray. And so it's not God's fault that bad things happen in this world. But here's the beauty of God's promises. 
He doesn't say everything happens for a reason, but he does say this. I can take the evil intent of human beings. I can take the bad things that human beings do, and I can make them turn out for your good. And that's what he promises in Romans chapter 8. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And so my heart breaks for people who have experienced things like sexual assault or any of the other evils of this world. And yet, I know what God promises. Somehow, in some way, he was going to redirect the bad things that happened for, to us to possibly give us opportunities to see his love, to, to, to know that he's working for good in all things. I don't have all the answers to why those things happen. And it's hard to live in a sinful world. There's no question about that. And I have to allow for this. If God wanted to, he could stop every bad thing from happening in this world because he's all-powerful and he's loving. And so we have to ask a question, so if he doesn't, why? And the Bible answers that a couple different ways. One way that the Bible answers it is he allows bad things to happen to us so we don't lose sight of something better that's coming. God allows bad things to happen in this world so that we hold on to him, that we rely on him. I think about the Apostle Paul's thorn in his flesh. Three times he pleads with the Lord for him to take it away from him, but God says this, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Sometimes God uses bad things as discipline. God disciplines those he loves, we're told in Hebrews chapter 12. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. In other words, sometimes God lets things happen to us so we don't lose sight of him, of our eternal goal, of, of what's most important in this life. But I can't explain everything. I can only tell you that God knows, that God sees all things. And that he has a promise that in all things he is working for good. So I'm very careful not to say everything happens for a reason because I think what happens is it puts evil at God's doorstep as God being the source of it. And he's not. He created a perfect world that was ruined by sin. And he wants us to make it to the world that is waiting for us that is no longer stained by sin. And none of the things that, that cause us trouble and pain in this world will be existing in heaven. So I'll just leave you with these thoughts tonight. From Revelation chapter 21, now the dwelling of God is with people and he will be with them and he will be their God and they will be his people. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have passed away. That's God's promise.